Good morning and welcome to worship this morning. We're glad that you're here. As you're coming in, we hope that you get a bulletin and uh, we want you to be a part of worship. We're going to begin this morning, if you would, stand with me if you're able, grab that red hymn book that's somewhere around you and turn to hymn number 701. Let's stand together as we open and sing, Redeemed How I Love to Proclaim It. seated and let me welcome you this morning and if you're here visiting with us we want you to fill out a visitor card there's one there in the pew uh, nearby we'd love to have a record of your visit and if there's a way we can minister to you please let us know there's a prayer request on the back side and if you'll fill that out even if you're not a visitor if you're here and you have a special prayer request then we want you to fill that out so that we can minister to you and know what it is that you need prayer for we do have several announcements. You'll see those if you'll turn to the back page. All the ministries that are starting back up with the ladies' ministry and the youth are going and the children's ministry, Sunday school, uh, they're all there for you to see. Um, and so we try to put that in there. It's also in the blast um, that goes out every week. So we really try to keep you up on those. I won't try to say anything special about those. If you have questions, please call the office and we're able to minister and fill you in on how that's done. I do want to announce especially that right after service, we will be having our annual congregational meeting. And so we will pause just briefly enough that if you are visiting with us or you're a non-member and you don't want to stay, we're going to give you a moment to be able to excuse yourself. But parents, help me out. We are not doing Sunday school as soon as we end service because that doesn't allow the people who are here. So if you have kids or you have those around you, please Contain them for a while, or if one of you wants to be with them, but please don't just set them free to roam the building and go down and mess things up. The teachers have things set for classes, but we want them to be a part of the meeting. And so in a nutshell, we'll break for a few moments. We'll be back. It won't take long. We want to present some things to you as a church, and then we'll be done in plenty of time to go to Sunday school and continue the morning uh, hour. So please, uh, remind, I'll remind you when we get to that time as well. Uh, but other than that, we look forward to worship this morning, and we're glad you're here. If I can, let me call us to worship from Isaiah 55. If you'll stand with me as we work through our time together this morning. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that me, he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come this morning to worship, we do ask for, for that pardon. 
Forgive us for our sins, Lord, as we come into this place. Help us to clear our hearts and minds that as we gather together as your children, as we study your word and open our mouth, that we can praise you, Lord. It will all be done to the glory of your name, that we might further your name and your kingdom here on earth. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. As we prepare to sing, if you would, join me as we share in our confession of sin. You will see that it goes from one page to the next if you want to be prepared. And if you would join me as we share together in confessing our sins. Almighty God, who are rich in mercy to all those who call upon you, hear us as we come to you humbly confessing our sins and transgressions and imploring your mercy and forgiveness. We have broken your holy laws by our deeds and by our words and by the sinful affections of our hearts. We confess before you our disobedience and ingratitude, our pride and willfulness, and all our failures and shortcomings towards you and toward our fellow men. Have mercy upon us, most merciful Father, and of your great goodness grant that we may hereafter serve and please you in newness of life. Through the merit and mediation of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And we always find the assurance of grace and pardon throughout scriptures and throughout the writings of our fathers and the many people who have experienced it. This morning from the Book of Common Worship it says, Almighty God, who does freely pardon all who repent and turn to him, now fulfill in every contrite heart the promise of redeeming grace, remitting all our sins, and cleansing us from an evil conscience through the perfect sacrifice of Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. And it is our prayer that you too experience that perfect sacrifice as we continue and sing together the Reformation song there in your bulletin.
may be seated. This morning we confess our faith using the Westminster Larger Catechism. Questions 170 through 172. Let's begin with 170. And these are dealing again with the Lord's Supper. And of course, next Sunday, first Sunday in uh, February, we will have the Lord's Supper. So this helps us understand and prepare as well for taking the Lord's Supper uh, next Sunday. How do those who receive the Lord's Supper in the right way feed on the body and blood of Christ? The body and blood of Christ are not present in bodily or physical form, either in, with, or under the bread and wine in the Lord's Supper. They are, however, spiritually present to the faith of the recipient, just as truly as the external elements are obvious to the senses. And so those who receive the Lord's Supper in the right way do truly and actually feed on the body and blood of Christ, not in a bodily or physical way, but spiritually, while by faith they receive and apply to themselves Christ crucified, along with all the benefits of his death. How do we prepare to receive the Lord's Supper? Preparation for the Lord's Supper involves careful examination of the condition of our life in Christ, of our sins and failings, of whether we truly and to what degree know God, believe in Him, and have repented, and of whether we love God and our fellow believers. We should have a charitable attitude toward everyone, including forgiveness of those who have wronged us. We must also assess how much we desire Christ and whether we are living in newness of obedience. Finally, we must renew the practice of these graces in us by serious meditation and fervent prayer. Should those who have doubts about their being in Christ or about whether they are ready to take communion come to the Lord's Supper anyway? Those who have doubts about their position in Christ or about their readiness to take communion may nonetheless have a valid interest in Christ, even though they are not yet assured of being in Him. In God's view, if such people are aware of and grieved by their lack of assurance, sincerely want to be found in Christ and want to get away from sinning, and since promises are involved in the sacrament and has been established to aid even weak and doubting Christians, if people in that condition are truly sorry for their lack of faith and work hard to resolve their doubts, they may and ought to come to the Lord's Supper so that their faith may be further strengthened. Isn't that marvelous to know? You know, often we do have questions and wonder about things in our life and yet to know that we can come and take the Lord's Supper, that in it we can be strengthened. As we go to the Lord's, or to prayer this morning and the Lord's Prayer, uh, a couple of things I wanted to share with you as we have an item of praise. Um, you remember the Operation Christmas Child, the shoeboxes? And uh, here's a praise item for you. A new record was set for 2023, 10 million, 10 million, 51,570 boxes were packed in the U.S. That is a new record uh, for Operation Christmas Child. And worldwide, they collected 11,330,126 worldwide gospel opportunities uh, to reach children with the gospel of Christ uh, through that ministry. And I got this from a friend who's still on my Facebook uh, back in Texas. And uh, she keeps me up to date on what's happening with Operation Christmas Child and the shoebox uh, collection. And so that's just a wonderful thing to praise the Lord uh, for uh, this morning. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come before you on this uh, Sunday morning, this Sabbath day, how we thank you for your grace and mercy that have brought us here, that every breath that we take comes from you, our sovereign God. 
And so we thank you and praise you, Father, that you've brought us together here to fellowship, to sing, to pray, to reflect, to meditate upon your word, to hear the preaching of your word this morning and be encouraged and lifted up to the glory of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we do come with praise and thanksgiving, but also confession, knowing just as we have confessed that in thoughts and words and deeds, we have broken your commandments. For your word tells us that if we have broken one, we have broken them all, because they are all connected in the law of love, love for you and love for our neighbors. And how far we have come and failing as you so often, Father, in our walk with you, but how we thank you. We have forgiveness in Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord, and what he has done for us there on the cross. And so we thank you and praise you this morning, Father. We give you the glory, Father and Son and Holy Spirit, knowing that you are here with us by your Spirit this morning in this hour. We pray for our brother as he brings the message this morning, for illumination of our hearts and minds to Readily receive the gospel as it's proclaimed, the word as it's proclaimed. Give us humble and contrite hearts and love for our neighbors, those round about us here this morning. Father, that we may show the love of Jesus to each other. Be charitable, forgiving, and loving to one another, even as Christ calls us to be as believers in you. And Father, this morning we come with a long list of those who need our prayer. And so we pray for healing for each one. We pray for Caleb Bedminster, and we pray for Nellie, and we pray for Josh, and for Zach, and Charles, and Mitzi Wicker, and for Paul, and for Gay, and Roxanne Jones. We lift them all before you this morning, Lord, and pray for healing and strength for each one, knowing that you are the great physician. We pray also, Father, for this month of January, the sanctity of human life. We thank you for the sacredness of life that we are made in your image. And as image bearers of Christ, may we show forth your love and protect life at all of its stages and ages. We pray, Father, that we would be a church and a congregation that sanctifies and believes in life in this culture of death in which we live, that we would lift up the Lord of life, the Lord Jesus Christ, to this world in which we live, Father, that desperately needs to hear of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you as well for the opportunity in a moment to give tithes and offerings, and we pray that you bless the gift and the giver. We thank you for that opportunity to again give you thanksgiving for all the ways in which you have watched over us and provided for us. We thank you for the ministries of here at Grace and for the good year that you've given us of this past year and for all the ways in which you've blessed us as we'll hear in the congregational meeting in a little while. We can thank you for the elders and the deacons and the volunteers and all the teams and all those who are involved in sharing the good news of the gospel through acts and deeds of mercy as well as through words. We thank you for our Sunday school teachers and our Sunday school classes, and we ask your blessing upon them and their preparation and the classes this morning, that Jesus will be taught and lifted up, that he will be exalted in all that we do. How we thank you, Father, that in Jesus Christ, you have given us new life through faith in him and what he has done. And so we give you the praise and the honor and the glory of this morning, Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And we continue to pray as Jesus taught his disciples to pray, saying, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. If now the ushers will come to the front and receive the offering.
as we prepare our hearts for the word, join us in your bulletin as we sing together, He Will Hold Me Fast. be seated and thanks again for the <clears throat> excuse me music and all the leadership of the choir and helping as we move forward uh, it's good we never like to put people on the spot but it's been a blessing to have Zach back up here playing the cello again and the stringed instruments and uh, he used to play quite a bit if you're new and visiting with us but um, Turn with me to the book of Mark. I want to speak to you on a topic that I guess is appropriate for most pastors when it comes to marriage and divorce. Your pastors are the ones that always have the perfect marriage and uh, are the ones that know all about how to make things work. And we're the, the people you come to when you want the examples. Um, honestly, when you begin to preach about things like this, you're humbled in many ways because uh, it's a very touchy subject in today. And how do you talk about something without offending somebody, without being afraid to step on someone's toes? And it's not the kind of question you would ask somebody to say, well, how many people here have ever had a failed marriage? 
How many people here have ever been through divorces that were rough? How many people here have struggled at times? And See, those aren't the things that people want to celebrate. They're not the things that people want to get out in the open. And then when you stand up to speak about them, we're only reminded that, please, this morning, you understand that the words are Christ's words. And in every area of our life, when we have to find discipleship, it's not in a general sense, it's in the specific areas of our life in which we are challenged to uphold the truths, regardless of what we've been through. So I take you on a journey here this morning quickly through Mark, as he does always, about when two become one flesh. It's only Mark's understanding. You could go back to Matthew and his parable that relates to the same, the teachings throughout. But I want to speak to you because I know I'm speaking to a generation and when statistics actually show today that over 50% of all marriages that come together do not stay. One out of two marriages today do not stand the chance of making it. So when we begin to look at that and what that means to our life, it means there's a whole section of Scripture that many people are afraid to be a part of, that many people don't want to address. We don't want to deal with it because... It's like every other sin in our life. It's hard to deal with Scripture when every time we read it, we're reminded that we have all this ink on us and the times that we have fallen and failed. You know what the difference is? Society still holds up some sins over others. And some of us have sin in our life that we have wrestled with for years and years, but nobody else knows about that, and it's not public, and so we're able to deal with it and find forgiveness and move on in the solitude or the quietness of our own lives. But there are those sins that we go through that everybody has to know about and how much harder it is to deal with it day in and day out. So Mark takes us on a journey this morning. I'll try to get through it and stay focused on what Mark has for Mark's Jesus for us. But I want it to be kept in the context that this aspect of marriage, which we see in chapter 10, also deals with children and possessions. It's an aspect of discipleship. Your marriage is an aspect of discipleship, of actually leading, following, teaching, directing. Your marriage is the picture of what it means to follow Jesus Christ for many generations to follow. Mark throws that in in discipleship, but what a radical difference Jesus has or an understanding of a marriage than what we would find in today. I couldn't list all the things that today believes about marriage. You know them as well as I do. We could go on and on about the list of what people call a marriage today, but this morning I don't want to deal with all of that. I want to stay focused on what these verses deal with. Because in Jesus' day, it was a struggle because obviously marriage and divorce was as great an issue then as it is now. Handling the marriages that were before them and how they were solving the marriages that couldn't make it were issues with them just as well. In Judaism, marriage was not a given of equals, if you wish. In a patriarchal society, in most cases, women were identified with either their husband, their father, or the children even at times. One of the greatest barriers and enemies to marriage in the time of Judaism was being childless. Just being childless put a barrier in the marriage to where we learn that even in some of our stories, women were willing to give their husbands handmaids to have children in order that the relationships might go better. Oh, it's no different today. We wrestle with our own issues, but now that we have it before us, Where now all of a sudden Jesus tells us that men and women equally responsible before God and the discipleship of their home, Jesus is ready to confront even his closest followers on how people deal with marriage. Here's what he says beginning in verse 1 of chapter 10 of the book of Mark. Setting out from there, Jesus went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, many would say the area of Perea, the Transjordan area. Crowds gathered to him, and again, and he was accust- as he was accustomed, and he once more began to teach them. And some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him, and began questioning him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce his wife. And he answered, and he said to them, "Well, what did Moses command you?" And they said, "Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send his wife away." 
But Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God created them, male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, no person is to separate. And then in the house, the disciples again began questioning Jesus about this. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. I want you to highlight that, circle that. And if she herself divorces her husband and he marries another man, she is committing adultery. Folks, I want you to see the importance of what is really happening here, and they're quoting back in Deuteronomy, and it's being misquoted by the Pharisees. It's actually taking a text and using it for permissions from Moses, and you need to go back and read the originals to find out what is actually being talked about here. And to be sure, we must take our notes from Jesus Christ, not culture. Every, every time we have to redefine what's happening in our homes and in our marriages and with our children, we can't look at what culture says is okay. We must redefine everything according to the words of Christ. And so here, Mark takes us on a journey. Let me walk you through it. First of all, with what begins as a question. They show up to Jesus and ask him the question. And he responds. It's an important part to realize here that when they're asking him this question, Jewish law has already permitted divorce. The question is not whether you can, it's what are the grounds for it? Just what is it allowed for us to do and to give a divorce? And the motive was not to find out the true answer. It was to test Jesus. The Greek word that is used here that we get from pyrazo is the word that is an intentional or if you wish to say a trying to trap or test somebody. What they were really wanting to do is to put Jesus in the same place as John the Baptist was. There in the area of Perea, they would understand that all of a sudden the story of John the Baptist would arise. And if they could ask Jesus his position, he would be caught in a trap in the middle. For if he took the sides of saying, no, you should not be divorced and grant that, well, then he would be taking the same side as John the Baptist took. When all of a sudden, Herodias, if you remember, and the marriage that came and the divorce was given to the king's daughter, and man, maybe it'll end up that Jesus will be beheaded just like John the Baptist. But if he says, yes, it's okay, we'll take the side of Moses, then they'll trap him on the Shammai side rather than the Hillel side, the liberal side of the law, and we'll trap him in saying that, look, now you're allowing the restrictions to take place of the law and the prophecy of Moses. The whole point was not to get an answer, but it was to put Jesus into a place that they could test him and challenge his authority, and hopefully the people would discredit him and walk away. It was a question that could not be won. We all have those. Have you ever asked someone a question that puts them on the spot? And no matter how they answer, they're going to lose. I've got some fun stories I could tell you. Not that I'm a jokester, but there were some stories. And I could tell you that when we first went back to Cartledge Creek in North Carolina, the Lord had blessed us and we had continued to grow and we needed to expand a sanctuary. And it was a historical building. And we finally decided to just push it aside, add to it, do all kinds of things and match the roof. So long story short, one of the guys in the church came to me and he said, I'll save the church money and I'll do the roof if you'll help me. His name was John. And so I said, sure. So he provided the nail guns. And for a couple of weeks, we got up on top of the roof and re-roofed the church. And we had a good time together and built a relationship. But while we were up there one day, my wife, Stacy, drove up and was coming in the parking lot and got out of the car. And I don't remember if she was bringing us something to eat, snack on, or just coming to see her husband to cheer him on, I don't remember what it was. But I looked over to John, and I remember specifically thinking, John, doesn't my wife look good? And I had him. Because when he turned around, he looked up and he said, yeah, she does. And I said, John, what are you doing looking at my wife? <laughs> and I had him the rest of the week because he knew he was going to be working what I wanted because... He realized afterward, being purple, that he realized, man, that was a no-win situation. I either said, yes, she looked good and supported it and got in trouble, or I said, no, I don't think so. And then we were in a mess because he didn't think she looked good. 
But we've all been there. And that's kind of what the Pharisees were doing, not in a fun way, but they were putting it out there to simply say, no matter what he answers, we've got him. This is our opportunity. It was the question that was trapping Jesus, not divorce. And Jesus answers it in just a moment, as you'll see. But the importance, like any person who, as we begin to think about a marriage, we don't define a marriage by talking about divorce. You see, the question was, they're coming to Jesus asking about all these permissions, and it would be no different if I could say this than a person who goes to the bank to get a loan, sits down with the loan officer and says, I would like to get a loan from your bank. And he says, okay, let's talk about the loan. And you say, well, first, let me know what it is I can do to get out of paying for the loan. What loan officer would help you? You don't go to the bank and talk about loans and start by talking about how you don't have to pay them. It's no different than when we talk about marriages. Today, we define marriages by whether or not we're able to get divorced. What is it that allows us to get out of this situation? We'll see as we go through the text, it's important because Deuteronomy was not designed to stipulate the reasons that why you could or should be divorced. It was there to help, to help the situation for women. Believe it or not, Deuteronomy stuck up for the women at times. It, it defined that women were able to be given a certificate, that men had to define it in writing. They had to be able to set them free. They had to allow them to be remarried, and they couldn't call them back just because they married someone better than they thought they would the next time. There was all kinds of things set up to help the women so that in the case of a marriage gone bad, the woman had a protection and a way to go on. Isn't it amazing that we talk about how bad women were treated, and yet Moses writes in ways to make sure they're protected. And so as they come to Jesus, Deuteronomy was not there to encourage divorce. Go back and read it. It was attempted to preserve the unfortunate circumstances. It's not there, if you wish, to specify even the uncleanness that's talked about. If you read in Deuteronomy, or if you go to the book of Matthew, the word for uncleanness, Matthew uses is the word for pornea or pornography, all kinds of immorality. The word that is used here in the text that we get for Mark is later on to describe as the one as adultery. But folks, it's not said that in Deuteronomy. We don't know, and believe this or not, back in the time when Deuteronomy was written, you didn't have to have a reason to divorce your wife in the case of adultery. Folks, the truth of it is, back then, if your wife committed adultery, you didn't have to divorce her. Why? You could stone her. The penalty was death. That's not what Deuteronomy was about. The Pharisees were bringing to Jesus a contextual thing just to try to trap him. They were twisting the things that were going on and what men could do because the king had done it and he was able to marry and the daughter was doing it. And so it was an immorality that was going on and they wanted to see where Jesus fit. And today it's no different for us. We see it even applied in the days of Joseph and Mary when Mary was pregnant with a child and Joseph could have petitioned for the right to have her stoned. And yet in mercy, he wanted to put her away quietly to show that the law provided a way for him to be gracious and merciful in the situation in which he thought she had committed adultery. You know the story and the Holy Spirit enlightens us but the point is, Jesus doesn't give in to the culture. He's not pressured by society. He takes this question, if you wish, and moves it over to clarification. He moves it to the point where now we understand what's actually happening. Look at verses 3 through 5 when he tells us, why did Moses or what did he even command you? He turns the question back on them. He didn't really answer it. He makes them deal with the real issue. And listen to what he says. He said, he gave it to you because of the hardness of your heart. If you want the word there, that's sclerocardia. You've probably heard the word cardia many times. It's the hardness of heart. But here's what's important. That hardness of heart is only a few times used in that sense and many times related in the old to what is called stiff-necked people. It's the same terminology that is used when we're referring to people who have a bad attitude toward God, not each other. Now catch this. 
They come to Jesus and say, well, Moses permitted this. And Jesus said, it's only because of your hard-heartedness. Let me paraphrase. It's only because of your bad attitude toward God that Moses permitted this. You see, the relationship between you and God was more important than the relationship between you and another. And to try to blame it on the other and to look at the examples that could come about and to find excuses in order to make it right was secondary to the point. The point was that the marriage belongs to God. He's the one that put it together. And when those things fail, they begin with a hard-heartedness, with something that's wrong between us and God. That's why it was permitted. If you think about it, they came to Jesus looking at the back door route. Let's talk about marriage, Jesus, but let's do it by talking about divorce. Think about this. I'll give you a few analogies. How many of you would love to learn to fly a plane? How many of you already know how to fly a plane, right? And if you did, did you show up to get your lessons to fly a plane and say, I'd love to learn to fly a plane, and they hand you a manual? The first thing it says is how to do a crash landing, how many of you would want to still fly if the most important thing is crash landing? You would say, well, well, I don't get this. It's no different in the military. We bring people from all over in the wakes of life to come and protect our country. We want to teach them how to protect the country, and they show up, and we're going to teach them how to fight. And the first thing they'll learn is a manual on how to retreat. Who wants to fight in the military like that? Do you see what was happening was they were twisting the whole point. We're trying to define a marriage by how we can get out of it. We're trying to find the importance of being united by the ways we can look to be excused to not have it. That's what they were doing. They were using Deuteronomy as a way to try to define something that they couldn't define in man's words. And Jesus clarifies this. It's the same in marriage today. People, you cannot begin a marriage by agree agreeing on how you can be divorced. Prenuptial agreements. Let's get married, but make sure we protect what's ours so that when we separate, we get back what belongs to us. Now, that's wonderful to protect one another, but that certainly didn't help define the type of marriage you would want to have. I bet if you showed up today on the altar of the church and wanted to be married and the pastor simply asked and said, do you take this person until death do you part? And your response was, well, if I need to get out of it, what do I do? I wonder how many would go forward. Folks, the seriousness of the question is we have so many marriages today that are built on the concept that let's see if this works, and as long as we have a way out, then let's go forward. And that's what was happening here. This wasn't about Deuteronomy. This wasn't about the divorce. It wasn't just about issues. This is about when two people become one. And all of a sudden, Jesus takes this. Listen to the questions that we get. The Pharisees ask it this way. Moses permitted a man. Folks, that's the word, epitrephiso. It's the word that means permissions and what's allowed. Listen to Jesus' response. It's the hardness of your heart wrote in his commandments. Those are the word entales. Those are the words for commands. Do you see the difference? They're asking about what's permission. Our worship reflects the glory of God. We have worship today that's no different. Think about this. We have times when people gather together and format their worship over what is permissible by God. We could dim the lights. We could have dry ice. We could throw videos up on the screens. We could bring in bands. We could have a little bit of entertainment. We could throw a little coffee in the pews. We could separate, even get rid of the pews, bring in recliners. We could make it a theater-type setting. I mean, all of that would be permissible because it's not withheld in Scripture. Someone would ominously have the right to say, yeah, but the Bible doesn't say we can't. And so today, we have many churches that have become, and I'm being gently, these seeker-sensitive, oriented churches that are doing everything that's permissible because the Scripture doesn't say they can't. And then you have those dry, chosen Presbyterian churches, <laughs> the frozen chosen, that choose to do not which is permissible in worship, but that which is what? 
commanded. We call it the regulative principle. God commands us when we worship to have the word preached. God commands us to have prayer. He commands us to open our voice in praise. He commands us, if you wish, to provide the offerings and the givings. He commands us to partake of the communion that comes together. Do you know what those elements are? You want me to give them to you fast so you'll never forget them? It's preaching, praying, praising, providing, and partaking. I made it easy for you. But we call it the regulative principle. And to add anything else to the service is now pushing the boundaries. Because why do what we're not sure God wants when we know we can do what he commands? I say to you in marriage, why listen to a society that may give you permissible reasons to do things when you can focus on the simple commands that Christ has given you. That's the clarification. And he moves us on to not only that, but to the discussion of what's happening today. Because all of this, a pretext for the divorce of, of wanting all these consequences that are coming about. Folks, let me give this before we move on to the discussion that Jesus actually gives us is that the intention of marriage and its divine intention cannot be determined by the permissions for divorce. Here's how he turns the discussion now. From the beginning, verse 6, Jesus now goes from the clarifying the issue to discussing it. He's now turning the tables on marriage. Jesus leads us right into letting Scripture interpret Scripture. He doesn't go to the uh, deducting of the reasoning of what happens in the laws. He goes right back to the words of God himself. He takes us back to the very beginning. The word is arche kitiseos, the beginning of creation. Now, I could preach a whole sermon on this if you want me to later, but I love this aspect. Here's why. Listen to what Jesus says. From the beginning of creation... God created male and female. Now, I'm going to focus on the male and female part, but catch this. If you're one of those who knows, I'm one of those fuddy-duddy, conservative, six-day literalists. But folks, if Jesus said God created male and female at the beginning of creation, why are we wrestling with how long the world existed before that? Was that truly the beginning? That's what Jesus said. The beginning of creation God made man and woman and we know he made him in just a few days but the point that they're saying here is listen to this the two becoming one is between a man and a woman I won't belabor the whole point but you realize that Jesus is not deducing anything from scripture he's declaring the commands of creation marriage is something that was given by God he understands that marriage is ordained it's a union between one man and one woman. Today we live in such a way that all of these things are being challenged. When we talk about being in a union with another person, think about this. We live in a culture today that didn't want to live by the institution of marriage. They wanted to change who was allowed to be married. And so they went ahead and got together. And instead of calling it a marriage, we call it a what? A union. And isn't that amazing that by true definition, a marriage is supposed to be a what? A union. So now we've let the culture take our terminology, change it and call it what they want, and then take our meaning of how important it is and put it on theirs. And so that now their unions are more important than our marriages. And we let culture do that to us. We let them take the commands of Christ, use them for their purposes, and then call them theirs and can change them like they want. And Jesus said, that can't be. It wasn't like that in the beginning. It was between just a male and a female. And how do we know that? Think about this. It says it right here. For this reason, man shall leave his father in what? Mother. It's generational. He keeps reiterating that this is specifically male, specifically female. It's been how it was created by God. And here's a great part. And he is to be united, if you wish, to his wife. For this reason, he shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. If you have an older King James Version, you probably have in verse 7 there from the late manuscripts, he shall cling to his wife. 
catch this. Jesus is saying that the marriage relationship when two become one is elevated more important than the relationship you had with your parents. Do you realize that to honor your father and mother was the second of the Ten Commandments? The only greater commandment was to honor who? God. And Jesus is saying that when God joins two people together and his will brings this to being one, that you are to leave the father and mother. That the role of the home is to take precedent, and I say this gently, over all the in-laws who become outlaws over time. I do love mine. But folks, the point is this. What God has joined together becomes the most important thing in your life. Gentlemen, I say that to you gently because you've got to let go of mama. Women, you've got to let go of papa. We know what it's like to be daddy's little girl. We know what the mom loves in her only son. And when the two become one, that must not be the highest part. This isn't about how to get divorced. This is about recognizing the importance of what God's given you, how high it ranks, even above the second commandment. That's the discussion Jesus wants to have. Our obligation is above what most people realize. And the two are no longer two, but one. Let me tell you this. The word that is used there that he puts together, that we are joined together, is actually the word suno exuxe, which means yoked together. The two have been yoked together for a common purpose, a common task, and one does not work without the other. This is not about a superiority of the man, more important. This is not about understanding that the women don't have a part. Sure, we have roles. Sure, God's designed a marriage to work properly. And there's many places in Scripture we can learn that. But Mark wants us to know when the two become one, it's a God-ordained function of working together to glorify God. It should be the most important relationship in your life. The discussion that Jesus has is that let no man separate. Catch this. It's not because they shouldn't. It's because they couldn't. Because what has happened is not, if you wish to say this, a contractual relationship. It's an ontological relationship. It's a brand new creation. God took two people and melt them together in a way in which they became one and became a whole new creation. If you don't like that, then just simply ask wife for the rib back. I mean, that's what puts together. Fine, just let me have that rib back. It belongs to me. It doesn't make sense. How do you do that? What God has joined together, no man. It's ontological. It's a new creation. You've been redeemed by God. You've been upheld to his glory. You have a purpose that many don't have. We can't define it by how we can get out of it. And so it moves from this discussion that is so important of a new creation to finally giving us direction. Listen to his words. They're hard for all of us. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits moikatai, adultery. Did you know of all the times that that word is used in the New Testament? Almost 30 times. It always in a reference to a relationship for the sake of talking to a person who's married to another. We have other words that describe other relationships. But isn't it amazing? Listen to what I told you to highlight. What Jesus is now giving us direction on is that this having a relationship with another married person, it used to be because if I, which I haven't, were to be with another person, I would be committing adultery against him. And if my wife were to be with another person, she'd be committing adultery against me. It was always in the context of who was being offended. The men. And listen to what Jesus says. Catch this. If you divorce a person and marry another, you commit adultery against who? Her. 
she's as important as as equal as and as necessary as the man. That's why Moses put in stipulations to make sure that if you did get rid of her in a general sense, you had to still make sure she was taken care of. You couldn't just drop her out there because she was created in the image of God just like men were. The direction that he gives us is that we are equal. The marriages of two equal creations put together to make one. And now both men and women responsible, listen to this, if she divorces her husband, unheard of in a Jewish society, but we've seen it practiced back with the king, women, men, what God has joined together, we are both equally responsible, accountable before the Lord. We don't determine our marriage on the opportunities we can find to get out. Adultery and divorce is not the issue. The thrust of this whole argument that Jesus gives us is that the marriage is a bond that has been intended and created by God. And here's what's important. Here's your conclusion. The human failure in marriage does not alter God's intended purpose. Just because 50% of marriages don't make it doesn't mean we have the right to change the purpose of what a marriage is supposed to be. Wherever you are in your walk with Christ, no matter what it is that you've been through, no matter how much it is that you've been through, the words of Jesus is not trying to shackle you with chains to keep you held back and to have you dependent upon all the guilt for the failures of a previous marriage. That's not what the words of Jesus mean. For we know that even earlier in Mark, he tells us every sin is forgivable except blasphemy. And to reiterate that, you cannot find one circumstance in Scripture in which any person came to God asking for forgiveness in which God denied them the forgiveness and restoration. This isn't about how can I get out of this and the rest of my life is ruined. This is about wherever you are in your marriage, it should be the intended purpose of being created by God to being restored to what he wants the marriage to be, regardless of what's going on around us. Yes, Christ went to the cross for these very sins. The hardness of our hearts and the attitudes we have toward Christ. As a summary, the direction that he gives us is simply this. It's not a question of divorce. It's a question of discipleship. Listen to this. Are you going to fall away in the times of trouble? Or are you going to continue to follow Jesus on this costly journey? Even in marriage. Yes, today we have lost touch with what God calls holy. And marriage is a gift from the foundations of creation. Jesus here just reiterates that yes, he discourages all of divorce. He reaffirms the law and its true meaning. He consumes, if you wish, or puts everybody under the, the guilty party to censure them. He defends those of us who are innocent in that situation. He upholds the sacredness of marriage. But finally, let me conclude by saying this. Yes, you can always ask the trapped question. When it comes to marriage and divorce, we need clarification. Yes, we need Jesus and his word to show us the discussion of truth. And most importantly, we need his direction. And yet finally, let me conclude by saying, though the whole world 
set aside the God-given, created institution of marriage. Let every Christian determine to be committed to their marriage and these sacred bonds. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we would have such tough issues in our life today, but they're no different than what you faced that you were able to instruct those who were looking and determining what a marriage was on the wrong reasons, that we live in a society that pressures us on what a, a man and a woman should be and what their roles are and even to define how other marriages should act. Lord, forgive us. Lord, you do give us, because of the hardness of our hearts, the right to be released. Lord, I pray for forgiveness for the times that we've forced people to be bound together to that which you have already allowed them to be released. And yet let us wrestle through the reasons for the forgiveness and the restoration of it. But Lord, in all cases where we have failed and where we have fallen, and even in our marriages that haven't ended in divorce, yet we've shown so much discrepancy in the truth of your word and how it's applied in our marriages, we have all fallen in so many ways to uphold this holy matrimony this institution that created a uniqueness of a whole new creation, we have all failed miserably in reflecting the discipleship that belongs in marriage. Lord, as we feel we're ready to falter and fail, pick us up, forgive us, and help us follow you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. If you're able at this time to stand, if you would, Take your hymnal and turn to 693 as we sing Blessed Assurance. Receive now the benediction. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, 
Keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be upon you and remain with you always. Amen. <laughs>